brothers and sisters. As many of you know, we've been making our way through 1 Timothy, uh, but given that today is Reformation Sunday, we are going to take a break, and I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 3, and as you were doing, to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Galatians chapter 3, and we are going to focus our attention this morning On verses 10 through 14, Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Let us give our attention now to the word of the Lord. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. The famous hymn writer, John Wesley, he once said, For it is not a saint, but a sinner that is forgiven, and under the notion of a sinner. He continued, referring to Romans 4, God justifieth not the godly, but the ungodly. Wesley's point, the gospel is a scandalous announcement of free grace, of grace not for those who deserve it, not for those who have their act put together. It's not for the saint. The gospel is not for the saint, but the sinner. This is why the gospel rings the sound of life and joy in the ear of the sinner. Because the gospel, brothers and sisters, really is good news. Now, in a lot of ways, this gets us not just to the heart of the Protestant Reformation, and again, today is Reformation Sunday, but really to the heart of the whole Bible. Think about this with me. How is it that a person can stand right in God's sight? How can a person not only have all of their sins forgiven, but also at the same time be declared positively righteous? Brothers and sisters, this is the heart of the Reformation. Now, when it comes to the Reformation, if if you're looking for a date, something that you can sort of stamp on a calendar, the origins of Reformation Sunday, they go all the way back to the 16th century, 1517 to be exact. It was on October 31st, 1517, the eve of All Hallows' Day, when Martin Luther, that Henri German monk, nailed his 95 theses to the church door there at Wittenberg. And those theses, that event, it sparked a fire that led to the Protestant Reformation. 
and a fire that by God's grace continues to burn even to this day. And so to honor Reformation Day and the recovery of the gospel from the darkness of Roman Catholicism, we will turn our attention this morning to the great doctrine of sola fide, of justification by faith alone. And to unpack this, we're going to jump right into the middle of Galatians 3. And as we do, my prayer leading up to this morning is that God the Holy Spirit would be pleased to open all of our eyes, perhaps for the first time or perhaps for the hundredth time, that God would open our eyes to see that our standing before Him, it comes only by relying upon Christ. Full stop. Nothing else, no one else. Our confession must be this. Christ and Christ alone is our righteousness. But of course, there are many pseudo-saviors. There are many bootleg Christs. There are many distractions that would steal our affections from Christ and rob our souls of the joy and assurance that comes from trusting in Christ. And perhaps one of the biggest pseudo-saviors is the law. The law. This is a phrase that we see throughout our section of Scripture, right? Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law. End of verse 10. Everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Verse 11. No one is justified before God by the law. Verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. My friends, please hear this. We are prone to trust in the law. That's our factory setting. That's our default setting as human beings. As Calvin said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And one of the favorite idols that our heart churns out and that we love to rely upon is the law. When it comes to how we measure up to God, we are born as legalists. We love the rules. We love to check boxes. Christian. We love the law because the law is something that we do and we love to do. Here's the problem. And this is really what Paul wants us to see there in verse 11 and verse 12. The problem is this. There is no, I repeat, no justification by the law. Verse 11 is clear. Now it is evident that no one, that includes you, is justified before God by the law. Now, before we go any further, we have to define two critically important words, both found in verse 11. The first word is justified, and the second word is law. What does Paul mean by those two words? Well, when it comes to justification, Paul is using a legal term. This is courtroom language. What Paul is effectively doing is he's talking about what happens when the gavel drops. That's what justification is. It's about what the verdict is. And there are three 
possible verdicts. <clears throat> you could be guilty, you could be innocent, or you could be righteous or just, hence the term justified. And to be justified, please hear this because this is so important, to be justified, biblically speaking, is to be right in the sight of God. To be right in the sight of God. And again, brothers and sisters, this really is the question of the Bible, of the entire Reformation, and really of every human heart. We want to know, how can we be right before God? Then you have that word law. While more, more narrowly, law here refers to the Ten Commandments, the law of God, more widely, it can really refer to anything you do. So law here, please hear this, is shorthand for your resume, your working, your doing. You see, law is about the person in the mirror, what you have accomplished, what you have done. That's the flavor. So with this in mind, jump back into the text. <clears throat> what God's Word is telling us is that the problem with the law is that you and I will not be justified by it. We will not be right in God's sight by our doing. Why? Why? Because that is not the design of the law. That's not its intent. God did not give His law. God did not thunder forth from Sinai with the idea that if He would just give all of us the rules and say, ready, set, go, that somehow all of us would be able to play the game, score enough points, and win. Think of a screwdriver for a moment. I think we can all agree a screwdriver is a great tool for turning a screw. But if you were to go out to the garage, grab a screwdriver, and try to use it as a spoon to eat your cereal, you would be radically frustrated. And the reason is, that screwdriver was not designed to be used as a spoon. Likewise, the law was not designed to make you and I right in God's sight. Now that's one problem with the law. The other is this. You and I, we cannot keep the law. We get this, right? This is one of those sort of paradoxes in the Christian life. As much as we gravitate toward the law, as much as we think that we can eat our cereal with a screwdriver... At the end of the day, we know that we can't do it. And the reason that we can't do it is because the law requires absolute, perfect obedience to it. Or to use the language of the 1689 Confession, chapter 19, verse 1, personal, total, exact, and perpetual obedience. That is what 
the law of God requires. To get a taste of this, just look at some of the passages that are in front of us, some of the language that's used. And as you do so, you might be able to tell for some footnotes or sort of how, your, uh, how the edition of your Bible is, in, if it's indented or not. You'll be able to see very quickly that, that Paul is quoting to make his case here from a bunch of Old Testament texts. So in verse 10, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Hear what the law of God says? Abide by all things. Not a few, not some, not even most, but all things. And then do them. (laughs) Do them. The man or woman who seeks justification through the law, he or she must do all that is in the law all the time. This isn't a buffet. You get that, right? You don't get to pick and choose. James warns us, James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So breaching just one part of the law is to be guilty of breaching the entirety of the law. Then in verse 12, Paul quotes from Leviticus 18.5, the one who does them shall live by them. Again, the one who does them. You have to do it. You have to do them. You have to keep the law, the whole law. You must obey each and every law personally, perfectly, and perpetually. That's the flavor. You have to do what the law requires. So let me say this. It's true that at one level, the law does promise life. But that promise of life, you have to see, Christian, it is rigid. It is rough. There is no grace in it. There is no mercy. There is no grading on a curve. If you want life from the law, then you must obey the law perfectly. No sin. Not one sin. Not ever. From the moment of your birth, you would have to be perfect every step of the way. But of course, a moment's honesty reveals that you and I haven't kept the law perfectly for an hour, nor less our entire lives. So that's the problem with the law. It doesn't give life. So what does it give? If the law doesn't impart life to us, what does the law give to sinners? Well, the word is, curses. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, and again, quoting from the Old Testament, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Brothers and sisters, do you see the penalty of the law is curses? Let let me just stop for a moment and ask you, What are you relying on? Maybe better asked, who are you relying on? 
If it's the law of God, then you are under a curse. Please understand, I'm not, I'm not trying to be harsh, and, and those aren't my words. Those are the words of sacred Scripture. If you are relying on your own obedience to the law of God to make you right in God's sight, then you, my friend, are under a curse. And you are under a curse because that is what the law brings. It's unyielding. It's severe. It's strict. Yes, it can give you life. But only if you obey it absolutely perfectly every moment of every day of your entire life. But if you sin just once, then the law no longer brings life. Now, the law is a harbinger of death. Instead of blessings, it pours out curses. Like when a volcano erupts and spews forth lava and destroys everything in its path, so does the law to those who break it. Molten lava is spewing forth from Mount Sinai, eviscerating everything in its path. And yet there are still many, perhaps you, who run toward that lava thinking that it will not destroy you. But it will. The law curses. And let me be quick to add, this is true not only of God's law, but it's also true of our own man-made laws. Let me, give it, let me have a real quick second to unpack this. We are such legalists we are so prone to doing and to works that we will actually go so far as to, to chuck the actual law of God and then we will invent our own new law and we'll do this thinking that it will bring us blessing. Now, I know that sounds sort of abstract. Let me just give you a concrete example. I have met handfuls, scores of Christians who think who confess, who believe that they are not under law, but under grace. At least that's what they say. But then they erect their own laws. They have to have so many quiet times per week. They have to attend this particular church event so many times. They think if they get baptized in the Jordan, or if they give so much money, or if they volunteer this amount of time at some local crisis pregnancy center, that they will somehow improve their standing before God. I want you to think about that for a moment. Rather than perfectly obeying God's actual law, which would bring life, so many Christians invent their own law, which they can't keep anyway, and then think that by their half-hearted obedience to their own laws, that they will somehow curry favor with God. Do you see how jacked up we are? Do you see how prone we are, even in, in, in every stage, to revert back to us and to our doing? But let the warning of verse 10 ring in your ears. 
If you are, verse 10, relying on works of the law, this could be God's law, this could be your own man-made law. If you are relying on works, then you are under a curse. Feel the weight of this. What you should hear thundering over you is, is curse, law, death. This is the problem with the law, and this is the penalty of the law. It can't give you life. It only brings about death. You can go this afternoon, if you'd like, to a graveyard, and you can stand over a headstone, and you can scream until you are blue in the face with commands. But you know what? It won't bring life. The law can't bring life so what can well only he who himself rose from the dead you see this now is the promise of the gospel and what galatians so desperately wants us to see and what the protestant reformers desperately wanted us to see the gospel and the law, they stand in opposition to one another. They are not compatible. They are foes, not friends, at least when it comes to our standing before God. Picture the scene. Each and every one of us, Scripture tells us, we are born spiritually dead in our sins and trespasses. And yet the law thunders over us. Be perfect. Be perfect. Like one of Pharaoh's taskmasters, it whips us and yells at us, more bricks, more bricks, but you get no straw. But we aren't perfect, are we? We can't make that quota. We have all failed to keep God's law. And then, to make matters worse, we tend to rely upon that law anyway. The verdict then? We are cursed. We deserve death. That is our condition, beloved. That is until Christ. Until verse 13. Christ, we are told, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. I would just pause and ask you, do you see the glory of your Savior here? Are you arrested by the beauty of Christ? Really, has the Spirit of God so opened your eyes to see and so unstopped your ears to hear so that you are drawn toward Him? What God's Word tells us is that Christ has redeemed us. He has come and He has purchased us from the sin and the death and the hell that once owned us. We were sin's servant. Death was our future. Hell was our destiny. But not anymore. We have been redeemed. And how did Christ redeem us? Verse 3 again, uh, verse 13 rather again, by becoming a curse for us. 
Brothers and sisters, Christ shed his blood to redeem you and I. What is Paul getting at here then? Well, as I trust many of you see, what he's really talking about is the gospel. The fact that the eternal and sinless Son of God, he came and he entered our world. He entered into our world of sin and of death and of misery. And he came not to sort of stand, to be standoffish, but he actually came as a human being. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He, he took our very nature to himself so that he was a man. He was one of us. And as one of us, he lived a perfect and obedient life before God the Father, before the law of God, the very law that each and every one of us break. And, when I, and I would ask you, what did Christ receive for his perfect life? Well, paradoxically enough, he was cursed. He was cursed for us. So much so that on the cross, Christ was actually treated as a sinner. He was regarded as you or I. He, he was treated as what we deserve. This is the miracle of the cross. This is what is happening. Christ is paying the payment for sin. Don't think, don't make the mistake of thinking of the cross as just some Jewish man being executed. We're talking about Christ. We're talking about the unique God-man. And when he was lifted up from heaven, to be hung, from earth rather, to hang there upon that cross, what Scripture tells us this morning is that in those moments, he was actually cursed of God. Hell was inflicted upon him. The very sword of God's wrath was unsheathed. And from heaven, the Father plunged that sword of divine justice through the heart of His beloved Son. But remember, Christ was innocent. And He wasn't just innocent. He was, he was righteous. He was just. And yet, He was treated as if He were guilty. Why, you ask? Well, this is really the beauty of the gospel. Our sin, it was imputed or charged or reckoned to Christ so that in that dreadful moment, Christ received in his own body what you deserve for your sin. And at the same time, Christ's very righteousness, his perfect law keeping throughout his entire life, it was imputed or charged or reckoned to you who have faith in Christ. So that in that glorious moment, Christ receives all that you deserve and you receive all that Christ deserved. This is why the reformers refer to this time and time again as the great exchange. Christ was cursed, so you'd be blessed. Christ died so that you would have life. 
Christ was regarded as guilty so that his people would be counted just. Speaking of just, you remember the statement there of verse 11. Now it is evident, we are told, that no one is justified before God by the law. And remember, to be justified, again, that is a legal term. This is courtroom jargon. So when the gavel drops, what is the verdict? You ready? The verdict is this. If you are relying on the law, then the verdict is guilty. The verdict is death. The verdict is hell. But if you are relying on Christ, then the verdict is just. The verdict is life. The verdict is heaven. As Paul would say to the Corinthians, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or as the 6th century poet Fortunatus put it, the royal banners forward go, the cross shows forth redemption's flow. Where he by whom our flesh was made, our ransom in his flesh has paid. Brothers and sisters, what must be seen and savored then, what must be pressed into and leaned on is this. When it comes to your standing before God, it will either be by law or gospel. This again gets us right to the heart of the Reformation. How will a man be just in God's sight? How will you be just in God's sight? Will it be by virtue of Christ and his gospel and faith? Or will it be by virtue of that person and his or her law keeping and his or her works? There are only two options. There are only two paths. And to combine or to conflate them is to absolutely destroy the gospel itself. So much so that built right into Galatians, again, and all of the Bible, there is this antithesis, a contrast, a polarity that exists between law and gospel. Your standing before God and I'm not talking about just on judgment day, but even right here and right now in this very instance. Is it owing to your doing or your believing? Is it based upon your performance or your faith? At the end of the day, and we should add at the beginning of the day too, are you pleasing in God's sight because of your works or because of Christ's works. And again, this gets us to this idea of the polarity of law and gospel. The reason that these are such in contrast with one another is because law and gospel do two entirely different things. The law looks to self. The gospel looks to the Savior. The law shouts, do this and live. The gospel announces, I've done this for you so that you would live. 
the law thunders, work, work, work. And the gospel reassures, rest, rest, rest. The law barks, if you aren't perfect in obeying the law, then you are cursed. And the gospel promises, I have been perfect on your behalf so that you would be blessed. Brothers and sisters, maybe, maybe another way to just kind of go at this same thing and to keep chipping away at it is that what we are faced with is really a fork in the road. Will you, verse 10, rely on works of the law or will you rely upon Christ? And again, it's, you can't do both. You have to choose self or Christ, law or gospel, works or faith. Think of the man who has one foot on the dock and then one foot in his boat. As the boat starts to, to pull away from that dock, the man will have to make a choice or he's going to get wet. Will he plant both of his feet on the dock or both of his feet on the boat? Let me ask you, where are your feet planted? Are you relying upon yourself or are you relying upon your Savior? The end of verse 11, and again, quoting again from an Old Testament passage, this time Habakkuk 2.4, we are reminded in verse 11 that the righteous, or the just, if you like, the righteous shall live by faith, not by works, not by law, not even by faith plus works or faith plus law. No, what we're talking about here is sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. This is where life is found. You must cease putting one foot in the boat and one foot on the dock. You can't do that. You have, you have to plant both feet in the boat. You must cling to Christ and you must do so with both hands, which means you can't have in one hand your resume. You have to chuck it. And you have to wrap both arms around Christ. This means that what the gospel is calling us to each and every day, brothers and sisters, is to receive and rely upon and rest in Christ. To renounce all of our pseudo-saviors and our bootleg Christs and instead to rely entirely upon Him, who He is and what He has done. That's really what faith is, isn't it? It's putting all of our eggs in the Christ basket. As William Gurnall has said, faith hath two hands. With one, it pulls off its own righteousness and throws it away. And with the other, it puts on Christ's righteousness over the soul's shame. To which you might be tempted to say, well, pastor, I understand all of this, but my faith is so weak sometimes. I doubt I struggle, I sin, I muck things up all the time. Pastor, I am tempted to rely upon the law or to invent my own laws and think that if, that if I have a whole week of good quiet times, God loves me more. And if I, if I have a really crummy week of quiet times, that God is more angry with me. Pastor, that's just where I'm at. I get that, I really do. In a lot of ways, we are all that way. But let me encourage you, dear saint, 
the strength or the resolve of your faith isn't ultimately what saves you. Christ does. It's not the amount of your faith that in the final analysis saves you. It is Christ. And when we complain about our weak faith, I'm not trying to be mean here, just just hear me out. When we complain about our weak faith, we are once again looking at ourselves and not Christ. You understand that? Get your eyes off of you. We already know this. You're a wretch. We, We all get that. Put the nail in that coffin and don't look back. Instead, fix your gaze heavenward. Lift your eyes to Christ and know that He is enough. Sure, you sin. And yes, you're going to doubt. And of course, your faith is weak. But know this, brother or sister. Christ is more than enough to save weak sinners like you and like me. Picture a man who has to cross over a frozen lake. Let's say this man has ironclad faith that no matter what, the ice will hold him. He has no doubts in his mind. He is stalwart. And then halfway across the lake, the ice bursts and the man perishes. Then consider with me a second man. He too must cross a frozen lake, but he has very little faith at all that the ice will hold him. He's worried. He's afraid. So he creeps along very slowly, inching ever closer to the other side until eventually, after his long pilgrimage of being on his belly, he makes it all the way across the lake to safety. Let me ask you, what mattered more, the faith of those two men or the ice beneath them? You say, you see, weak faith in a strong Savior is so much better than strong faith in a weak Savior. And Christian, in Christ, we have the mightiest of Saviors. We are promised that the ice will hold. This is the good news of the gospel. So Christian, this Reformation Sunday... Let us, by the grace of the Spirit, remind ourselves afresh. Let us preach these truths into our very bones. Christ is our justification. Christ is our sanctification. Christ is our glorification. Christ is all and in all and through all. Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. Christ is everything we need. So receive Him, rely on Him, rest in Him, and turn, would you, from the vain and futile exercise of trying to satisfy God with anything you have done, are doing, or will do. And instead, embrace all that Christ is for you. And know that Christ has done it all. That there is nothing that you can add to what Christ has done. You're not a joint savior. You're not a co-savior with Christ. He has done it all. Back to that 
Henri German monk, Martin Luther, he got this. This is what he told his congregation, and so I repeat it to you this morning, and I trust that it will encourage your hearts. Luther, explaining the gospel and, and justification, he said this, speaking, speaking for God. If you wish to placate me, do not offer me your works and merits, but believe in Jesus Christ, my only Son, who was born, who suffered, and who was crucified, and who died for your sins. Then I will accept you and pronounce you righteous. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel. Let us rejoice in what God has done in Christ for us. Our Father, we are a people who we pray by your Spirit at work in our hearts, even in these moments, that you would be causing joy to overwhelm our hearts that our eyes this morning would be fixed upon Christ, that you'd keep us from staring at the person in the mirror and thinking that somehow uh, by our good deeds or by our lack of bad deeds that we can somehow curry favor with you. Instead, we pray that our hearts would rest entirely upon Christ, not just this moment, not just this morning, but every day going forward as we make our pilgrims to to the celestial city. Father, we would also pray for your spirit to be at work, not just in the hearts of your people to encourage and strengthen faith this morning, but also to be at work in the hearts of any of those, young or old, who are gathered here this morning that do not yet know Christ. We pray that your spirit would convict them of their sin and drive them to their Savior. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.